So we are, uh, we're studying the book of Revelation. This is our third week. And uh, we are now in this section of the book that is these letters to the churches. And has anybody read Harrison Scott Key's new book, How to Stay Married? Two? Highly recommend this book, okay? Harrison Scott Key, How to Stay Married. In this book, Harrison tells the story of, uh, first of all, he is a, a humorist. And so he's written two other books, very funny, uh, laugh out loud by yourself, kind of funny. And in this book, he tells the true story of how his wife had a secret affair for years. Yeah, everybody got real quiet there. Um, and how they just walked through that together. And they are still married to this day. And so it is hilarious and gut-wrenching and beautiful and all the things. But I just finished that book and he talks in there about uh, when he discovers what happened and that his wife's been having an affair and he's talking with the people in his life. He talks about how the people in his life came to him with all these different, came to him in a bunch of different ways with a lot of different pieces of advice of what he should do next. Some people were like, just leave her in the dust, move on. Some people said, you know, you need, need to get really romantic and try to just like overkill on the romantic gestures and kind of everything in between. But he said there was one friend's words that stood out. And this woman asked the question, you're going to fight for her, right? And he said, fighting for my wife and my marriage looked more like building up rather than tearing down what still remained of our life. And he goes on to describe how you know, in this moment where he's deciding to fight for his wife, he makes very plain in the book that at this point, she is still strongly preferring the other man. They have daughters together. And so this, all of this is kind of mixing together and she's, she's got all these competing things going on in her heart, but she makes clear to him and he makes clear to the reader that at this point, she is still would say, I love this other man and I'm not sure that I love you at all. And so they're having conversations. She's moved out of the house at this point. They're having conversations on a regular basis about, you know, getting the girls from one place to another. And he talks about how all this process, you know, what's, what's happening is he is loving her and he's being present with her, but it's not the kind of mushy, like overkill, sort of surface, shallow uh, gesture, grand romantic gestures. It's just this man who is bearing the weight and dealing with his own stuff. And, um, and he says one time he had this phone call where they were just kind of trying to figure out what to do with the girls this week. Um, and he's, he's reminding her, hey, you can't keep living in both places. You can't live in this middle ground. You, you have to choose and he says, um, all I heard on the other end was a quivering silence, a chasm in creation opened. And then after what felt like an eternity, she said she wanted to come home. And she said, can you come get me? And she's saying this as she's saying, and I still love this other guy, but I just feel like this is the right thing to do. And he says, the road from here would be long, I knew, and the real journey lay ahead. And so I'm not going to say any more about the book because I want you to, to read it, but he, um, it, it's not what you would expect when you think about romance and when you think about love, but it's exactly what needed to happen. 
And, and um, this letter reminded me very much of this letter that we're going to read that is a love letter from Jesus to his people, to us. Um, there are seven letters in, within this letter that is the book of Revelation to the seven churches. If you've been with us, we've been talking about these seven actual congregations, these churches in Asia that um, Paul, or excuse me, that John is dicta- he's being dictated this, like he's seeing visions, he's seeing um, Jesus is speaking to him and saying, write these things down and give them to the churches because they need them to be blessed, to be encouraged. They're suffering. Um, there's all sorts of hardship. There's all sorts of persecution going on and they need to be encouraged. You know, revelation is the revealing. They need to see things as they are now. They need to see me as I am now. They need to see the things that are about to come that you can't see with the naked eye. And so he writes these letters, and, and as you're going to hear in just a second as we read it, these letters sort of take on the, the form of uh, these royal edicts that were common at the time. So the king would write to his subjects in different places and tell them the things that they were doing well and the things that they were not doing well. And um, so here what we have in this, we're, we're going to read two of these letters. We've, we've reserved two weeks of the study of Revelation to read two of these seven letters. And the one today is, is letter to the church in Pergamum. And what you're going to hear in this letter, um, I'm calling the title of the sermon is Jesus's Intolerant Love Letter. But what you're going to hear, it, it is not mushy. It does not sound romantic. It does not sound gushing. But it is a love letter from the king. It is a royal edict and a love letter. And Jesus is so passionately intolerant. Um, Why? Because he is passionate about his people experiencing freedom and abundant life with him, not enslaved to lies that destroy. In the same way that if, if Harrison Scott Key had just been unaffected by the fact that his wife was pursuing and being pursued by this other man, um, that's not a picture of love. But to, to fight for her, sometimes to fight with her for her because he loves her, um, this is what's happening in this letter. This is what Jesus is doing with us. And when we talk about tolerance, which is a, a highly valued cultural ideal right now, um, we talk about tolerance, we're, we're talking about validating ideas. We're talking about letting ideas take root in a person, in a mind, in a community, and letting the fruit of those ideas blossom into real life that affects us on many levels. And anything that's not in line with the truth of Jesus Christ in the gospel enslaves people because he has come, he is the truth, and he has come with the truth to set us free so that we can have abundant life. And what we're going to hear in this letter and what often happens is not talking about replacing God, but just adding to. We can worship God and we can worship these other things too. We can worship God. We can still follow him. We can still call ourselves Christians, but we can also worship these other things. And we can also find ways to live in the world uh, that are, help us to live painlessly in sync with the world and the culture around us. But we know that the truth is that when we live like this, um, two competing ideas cannot survive together perpetually. One destroys the other. We know that from trying to have gardens and the weeds that grow up and kill the plants in the garden. We know that from having cancer at a cellular level, that you can't just allow cancerous cells to coexist with healthy cells because at some point the cancer is going to win. And so this is what we're dealing with. And I came across this quote from a 
a theologian this week that I thought was so, so beautiful, and, and maybe we could just end the sermon here. He said, tolerance is not a biblical virtue, but patience is, understanding is, civility is, graciousness is, humility is, mercy is, but not tolerance. Because what is the first word of the gospel? The first word of Jesus's public ministry is to repent. It's to stop and turn around. You're heading in the wrong direction to confess, I am living by what is not true. I'm heading in the wrong direction. I need to stop and conform my ways to what Jesus says is true and is good for me. The word means change your mind. All people are welcome in Christ's church. All people are welcome in Christ's church. Broken, frail, struggling people of all kinds. But not all ideas are welcome. We are all welcomed by the king, and then we are called to repent, to change our minds, to submit our thinking and our living to Jesus Christ. So uh, I'm going to call Ryan Jones to come up and read our passage for us. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you on the front end, this is going to be a, a tough one. Um, just like a loving father, a loving king, a loving husband, um, Jesus is coming to us today with some hard words, but it's in love. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have come there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If I... If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we belong to you. We, we who are here, who are your church, who, who are your people, who have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus, we belong to you. We are your bride. We are your people. And Lord, you, you come to us sometimes with hard words because you love us, because you, you are not going to sit idly by and watch us walk off into slavery and watch us walk off into darkness and into destruction. Thank you for bringing hard words to us because you love us. Thank you for not leaving us to our own devices. Thank you for rescuing us and continuing to rescue us for the rest of our days, Lord. Thank you that no one can snatch us out of your hand, not even ourselves. Lord, and for, um, for those who are here today who are just curious, who are trying to make sense of, of who you are and, and what this all means, uh, I pray that you would come and that you would speak to them in a way that they could understand and draw them to yourself. And Lord, for those of us who are yours and who have been yours for some time, I pray that you would uh, pierce our hearts, 
that you would bring us to repentance because it is a gift to set us free. Lord, reveal to us, make, make plain to us what is hidden so often, the ways in which we are trying to live this life apart from you and pursue things that are not in accord with what you tell us is good for us or what is true. Lord, would you make us like little children? Would you humble us? Would you um, set us free in our humility and our faith in you? And would you take us by the hand and lead us into abundant life? And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And uh, I've said this before. I I feel like we're due for another one of these. Um, It's actually really encouraging. Some people are different, but I, I love hearing you guys say, be verbally responsive. So if you want to say amen, can everybody practice that? Amen. Yeah, that's good. Or anything you want to say, really. Um, it matters, and I would love that. Okay, so this, this letter, um, this is going to this place called Pergamum, which is the most distinguished city in Asia at the time. This is the home of the great altar of Zeus, and there were three other Greek deities where they were like really central, really big places of worship for these four Greek deities, but also maybe more uh, important to our conversation today, this was the Asian center for the Roman imperial cult. This was the place in all of Asia that was the capital of of emperor worship. So we talked about that in, in some of the weeks past, but this is where people worshiped the emperor as God. The city's symbol was a sword. And the reason that the city symbol was a sword was because this was one of the few cities that Rome had given the right to inflict capital punishment. And so when Jesus starts this letter, you know, if you've been with us, uh, we, we read and we, we talked through this description that John sees of Jesus. And it's these sort of successive visions of what Jesus looks like as he is now, as he's walking amongst his people, as, he's, as he is continuing to live and be among his people, the churches. Remember, we saw this one who was like the son of man who was standing amidst the seven lampstands, which were the seven churches. And we have all these, these different descriptions. And what you're going to see in these seven letters is um, Jesus is describing himself. He's taking one or two of those characteristics from the vision that John saw of him, and he's applying them specifically to these specific situations and these specific people that he's writing these letters to. And really, these letters are for all seven churches, because this whole thing was supposed to go to all the churches, and what's happening, we've already talked about how seven is this, uh, it it was really seven churches that were really getting these these seven letters, uh, but also seven is this number for completeness in the book of Revelation. And so, and, and we know that scripture was written not just for the immediate audience, but for us today. And so, these seven letters to these seven churches were given because these are all the kinds of things that God's people are going to face in his church for all time. And so these are for all of us. So this letter is written to us in Nashville in 2023. And so Jesus starts this letter by identifying himself as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He is writing to these Christians in this place where they are proudly brandishing the sword, and this is the sword that executes uh, capital punishment, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 I want you to remember who has the bigger sword. You can't always see it, but I am the one who is brandishing the two-edged sword. I am the one who has the power of life and death. 
And he is reframing reality from the start because as, as we just read and as we're about to see, um, it, it was very intimidating to live in this place. They had witnessed one of their members killed probably by the government for not uh, participating in imperial worship. So they had watched the government's sword fall on one of their own. And now Jesus is saying, hey, don't capitulate out of fear because I'm the one who actually has the sword who is, is even more powerful than the sword of this government. And what he's doing is he's reframing reality because he's reminding us, this whole letter is reminding us, this whole book is reminding us that we cannot see things as they are. We know that. I mean, even people who are not in Christ know this because we deal with things like cancer all the time. That I can look healthy on the outside, but at a cellular level, I am being destroyed. And, and no, one would, no one would have any problem confessing that I don't know everything that's going on inside of my body. And so why can't that also be true at a spiritual level? And that's what Jesus is saying is this is true at a spiritual level. There is a life beyond this life, and you cannot see all the spiritual forces that are at work around us. You cannot see what is going to happen when your body dies and your soul lives on. And so that's why I'm here revealing myself to you. I'm revealing these things to you because I do not want you to be unaware of what is true. And I want you to live in line with this truth. And so this is who's writing this letter. And he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. That's, that's pretty scary. And later he, he says again, where Satan dwells. We know that Satan is not like God and that he is not omnipresent. So what is Jesus saying when he's saying that this is the place over all the earth where Satan's throne is and where he dwells? Well, this is the place where um, Satan seems to be having his way. Because if you remember all the way back to Genesis 3, when we first see the serpent in the garden, what he is trying to do is he is trying to get people to worship anything other than God. To worship anything at all. So all these Greek deities, you know, the God of the sea, the God of war, the God of whatever, just, yes, go worship anything. Go worship this tree. Go worship this animal. Go worship the sun. Go worship a statue. Just go worship anything but God. And then we see this, this imperial cult, the, the capital of the Asian imperial cult, is you see a man sitting on the throne claiming to be the almighty, claiming to be the living one who will never die, claiming to be God incarnate. And this is exactly what he was trying to sell to Adam and Eve in the garden. You don't need God. You can be God. You don't need to listen to him. You don't need to... Uh, find truth according to the way that he describes it to you, you can go find your own truth. He is holding back from you. You can't trust him. And so here we are in this place where literally everyone is worshiping everything except God. And there's a man, a human, a mortal, who has the audacity to sit on the throne and say, no, 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 I am God. Worship me. And so this is where this church is, is trying to follow Jesus and trying to worship the true God in the midst of all of this craziness. And Satan always traffics in pride and fear. Always. Fear. Antipas. 
killed by the imperial cult. If you keep following God exclusively, you're going to end up like him. The intimidation, the fear, but also pride. Look, you can worship all of these other things. You can worship anything besides the real God of the universe because that way you can get whatever you want because you can summon some kind of divine power without the divine authority. You want more sex? Go have more sex. Go to the, go to the pagan prostitution cult and go have more sex and you can worship the God of sex. You want more success at work? Go do that. You want, you want a, a good, abundant harvest for your crops? Go worship the God of the seasons and the sun and the rain. Go get all the things that you want without having to answer to any divine authority because those things can't talk back to you and tell you that you're wrong and tell you that you're not okay. And so here we are, just in this, this mess of pride and fear where Satan's throne is. And, and the way that I read this, I don't believe that he's saying this is the only place where Satan's throne is. So Jesus is saying, I, I know where you live. I know how hard it is to follow me in this place. I know how hard it is for you to be faithful to me in this place. I know you've just watched someone that you love run through by the sword. And you're holding fast to my name. But, I have a few things against you, but there's some things that we need to talk about. I love you, and we need to talk about these things. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. I'm not going to talk about that because you guys all know that story. Just kidding. <laughs> this is a story that comes from Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. This is a story of the Israelites, God's people, coming into the promised land. And, and I'm just going to give you a, a brief summary. There was a king of, of one of the people who was afraid of God's people coming in. And so he... He is Balak, and he hires Balaam, who is this somebody that you are likely to meet today. He is a very open, very spiritual guy who is a diviner, which means that he is trying to, to uh, hear from supernatural forces to learn about the future and to learn about the things that he can't see. So he is a very open person to any and all forms of God or gods or spirituality. And so uh, Balak hires him and says, I want you to take whatever deities you can work with and curse God's people, curse the Israelites so that they cannot come in here and take over because I'm threatened by their presence. And so as the story goes, um, he tries and he keeps hearing from the real God of the universe saying, you are not to curse them because I'm not cursing them, I'm blessing them. And so he keeps coming back to Balak saying, hey, I know you're trying to pay me and trying to get me to do this, but I can't do it because God's saying I'm not cursing them, I'm blessing them. And so the king keeps saying, well, why don't you try harder? Why don't you listen harder? Why don't you do this other thing and just see if there's a way that they could be cursed? Well, no, there's no way that they can be cursed. And then eventually what happens is Balaam has an idea. And he goes back to Balak and says, Hey, since they can't be directly cursed, 
you could defeat them in this more surreptitious, indirect way. You could infiltrate their culture with your culture. And it could basically, they could just be absorbed into your culture and stop worshiping God altogether. And so that's what they do. They entice women from this country to go and intermarry and have sexual relations with all of the, the men and all the people. And then they begin to come with them and worship their gods at their altars. They begin to eat food in a religious feast that is sacrificed to these idols. And the people of God are being led astray in this very quiet, very subtle, but very pervasive way where their culture is essentially disappearing because they're being assimilated into the cultures around them. Now here's the crazy thing about this story as it appears in scripture. You don't get that so clearly written in the account of Numbers 22 through 24. All you have is, hey, please curse these people. And he says, no, I can't because God won't let me. And then the very next chapter, we don't hear anything about Balaam, but we hear about this practice happening where the people were trying to lead them astray sexually and religiously, and Balaam's name is never mentioned until many chapters later where someone just references it that, oh yeah, that was his idea. And so at first I'm like, this is so confusing to read this story in scripture, but then I'm like, oh wait, the story, the way the story is written, the medium is the message, the way the story is written is is telling what actually happened is that it happened so surreptitiously that we didn't even see it coming. Like you don't know that Balaam is the one who masterminded this whole scheme until you read Numbers 31 or even in the book of Joshua. And that is how the enemy works against the people of God. And so he goes on to say, um, some of you are also in the same way holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And, and what he's saying essentially is um, the same fruit is coming from this. It's just a little bit different flavor. And so, so with the Nicolaitans, these were people who were essentially saying um, just in this deep arrogance, oh, well, we all know what really matters. I mean, if God is this super spiritual being who is, who is over everything, then surely he doesn't care about who we like sleep with because like these bodies are so transient. You know, the physical world is just passing. And what really matters is ideas and principles and spirituality. So we can, with our physical bodies, we can do anything we want. Like we can go have sex with temple prostitutes. We can go eat at these feasts and bow down to other gods. Cause we're just, I don't know, we're just doing kind of the thing to get by. But we all know that like, does God really care about that? No, we're too enlightened for that. And what happened, just to put this in the context of, of Pergamum and like how and where all these things are happening and why God is choosing to describe these things, why Jesus is describing these things using the language that he is, is because these people find themselves in this Roman culture where, as one ancient writer said uh, about the sexuality of the times, we have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and for having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. We kind of have all of our bases covered. And this is the culture that God's people were, were living in. Um, and they would have these feasts, these um, guild feasts. So if you were some kind of worker, like if you were a, 
a uh, metalsmith or you know whatever, a woodworker, you would be a part of this guild. It was this professional guild, and in order to actually make a living, you had to be a member of this guild. And these guilds would have feasts where it would just be this raucous celebration where everybody would get wasted and that they would all sacrifice to these idols, these uh, food sacrifices, and then they would eat these sacrifices together. And then a lot of times there would be all sorts of debauchery after the fact and all sorts of sexual party time happening at these feasts. And so these Christians are trying to live amongst these people and trying to be true to, to God but they were just feeling this immense pressure of like, this is my livelihood we're talking about. Like, and, and this is just the cultural water, this is the water I'm swimming in. So the way that like my body wants things, and this is how everyone around me is thinking about sex. Like it, it's just really hard to live in this way that God's called me to live when everything I see and everything I feel and everything that's coming in through my five senses is telling me that there might be a different way that is better. And we know this. Like, like when I just read that passage from this, this uh, ancient Roman guy talking about the sexual life of the Roman culture, about how we have prostitutes for this and concubines for this and, and wives for this. I mean, you know, we, could, we could just sub in a few things there and, and kind of get to the same place. Like, well, we have pornography for this you know, to make me feel good in this way. And I have, uh, you know, what people call like the work spouse for this, to flirt and just to have a deep connection with. And then, you know, we have uh, the people that I like to go get emotionally fueled by, or maybe I even go visit prostitutes or I go visit, um, you know, strip clubs or, or whatever. Or, or maybe, you know, I have, I have people I go on dates with really just for the physical thing, but I'm not like, I'm not going to marry them. You know, I'm not serious about that. Um, you know, we're, we're not really too far off from what we're talking about here. And I mean, think about a lot of us, think about your work trips. Like, might look pretty similar to the guild feast, where it's like, I just give myself permission. Oh, that's just what we do. Like, we go on these trips, we all get totally hammered, and I act like somebody who's totally not myself for three days. And then I come home and try to pretend like nothing happened. Um, I literally, I actually worked at a place where we had an annual conference before I was a pastor, <laughs> this wasn't at a church. Um, <laughs> it's going to get weird if it is, but um, where literally I was being indoctrinated leading up to this first annual conference my first year there. Where it, was, it was just literally like, hey, just so you know, man, it gets pretty crazy. And, and everything that happens there, there's just an understanding that like, we don't bring it home with us. It's like, you're going to see people hook up with each other that are married. You're going to see people getting just blitzed and like splayed out in the grass with no clothes on, you know, like, but just, just know that it's just kind of, it's what we do. And it's like, that's, I know that that's not unique to me in this one place where I worked. And so here we have this letter to the church a long time ago on the opposite side of the world that is also written to us and is also immediately equally applicable to us because we are concerned about our two gods of work and sex. I am concerned about my career and I'm willing to sacrifice an awful lot of things at the altar of my career to make sure that I am successful. 
And when it comes to sexual fulfillment, you might as well take the word sexual off because it just is fulfillment. That's what it is to be fully human is to be fully sexually fulfilled in the way that I, I think it means. And so I'm going to cut corners and I'm going to live with somebody who's not my spouse. I'm going to, I'm going to sleep with who I'm dating. I'm going to just buy into anything and everything that I want that makes me feel good and makes me feel like I'm being true to myself and obeying every urge that I have. But I'm also like, I can do both, right? I can worship God and my career. I can worship God and these bodily urges. I can worship both. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you cannot. And so in verse 16, this is where it gets real as if we weren't getting there already. You got to really pay attention to the words that Jesus uses in this verse, verse 16. He's just, before this, he said, some of you, so not the whole church, some of you are living like the Nicolaitans. Some of you are living like following after Balaam's teaching. And then he says, therefore, all of you repent. If not, I will come to you soon. I will come to all of you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. What is he saying there? You have some in your midst who are living like this. So all of you need to repent because if you all don't repent, then I'm going to come to those some and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And again, Jesus is reminding us who has the bigger sword, who has the scarier, more dangerous sword. You know, the Jesus of revelation is not this new Jesus that we've never heard of. Like, whoa, Jesus has been in the weight room. Now he's tough. Cause like when we saw him in the gospels, <laughs> he was just real cool and real peaceful. Okay. Lest we believe that, um, Matthew 10, 28, which is Jesus in the gospels, he tells his people, don't fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. Rather, fear him, God the Father, who can destroy both body and soul in eternal hell. That was happy Jesus. That was pre-revelation Jesus, which I'm being facetious. He is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus of mercy is the Jesus of justice, is the God of, is God. Psalm 712 says, if man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. And what he is saying is there is a day coming and you have to decide. And the reason he's saying it and saying it so many times throughout this entire book, throughout all of human history is because he is a God of mercy and grace because he does not want anyone to perish apart from him. He's very clear about that. And he is also serious. And he is the God of the universe who cannot live and, and abide by sin and cannot abide by things that bring death to his beloved creation. So he is both. And he's saying, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm writing this letter to you right now, even when it's really hard and when there's so much pressure to capitulate and to live in ways that I've told you is not good to live. 
You need to hear both, that I love you and that I'm with you. And then if you choose to keep going in this direction, it ends in death. It ends in destruction. There will be a day where you will be separated from me forever. And what Jesus is saying in the usage of these pronouns and saying, you know, some and all, what he's saying is you all, like all of us at Midtown West, we collectively have a responsibility to one another to be our brother's or our sister's keeper. Because what Jesus is saying is some of y'all are going off the rails in terms of worshiping your career and in terms of worshiping your bodily urges. So if all of you don't wake up and go to those people and tell them that they are moving toward death, then I'm going to come. And when I come this time, it's going to be to say, I'm giving you what you wanted. You are severed from me for forever. And there's so much about what the enemy is doing in our midst to make us feel like, well, who am I? I couldn't possibly, I, I, am, I know because I'm having conversations with y'all, I know that there are many of you sitting here right now who are thinking of very specific people in your life who you know are living in a way that is not healthy for them. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know that you are thinking, who am I to say anything to that? Because look at the way I'm living. Or because I don't understand, or maybe I don't know, or maybe I don't, you know, or because I'm afraid for any reason. And Jesus is saying, hey, sometimes we got to do hard things. But I'm telling you, this is how I come to my people when they are not living in a healthy way to call them to repentance is to come through my people. You have a responsibility to one another. And it starts here. It starts with me and it starts with Evan and it starts with Andrew Pika and Nick Pilkington as the elders of this church. Like this is the place where we, we have responsibility. Evan just had his ordination service. And one of the things that I said to Evan in charging him in his ordination service is I want you to love these people of Midtown West that God has called you to more than you love their love for you. Because there will be times where they go astray and you will be called to chase after them and they will hate you for it. That will happen. It has already happened and it is painful. And I have to confess, um, there have been times because of fear that I have done like either side of the coin in a way that is not healthy. There have been times that because of fear, I've just pretended like I didn't see or hear something because I just don't want to get into this again. Because guess what? Nobody likes that. Nobody wants to have someone come to them and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. I think this way that you're living is not good. That rarely goes well. So I get tired of it and I get worn out. And as somebody, a mentor in my life a long time ago said, uh, exhaustion makes cowards of us all. And when I get tired, I don't want to deal with it. But then there have been times where I've gone hard in the paint. <laughs> and that's been based in fear too. Because I read things like this and say, I don't want to be wrong. 
So I've got to go attack this and deal with it so that I'm not on the hook. And that's not good either. So what do we do? Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's just for the leaders of the church, but, but scripture is really clear that it's not just the leaders of the church. It's everyone, everyone who is a part of this body. We have a responsibility to each other. Just to show you, I'm not making this up. Galatians 6, 1, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritually healthy enough to see it should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Everyone, there is no modifier there. Everyone who is in the body has this responsibility. James 5, 19 and 20 says this, brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him or her back, let that person that brought them back know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And y'all, when I decide that I just don't want to deal with this conversation and I just watch someone walk off into the sunset that leads to destruction, that is not from our Jesus because that is not what he's done. In fact, he took on all cost possible, limited himself in a body like ours, came to earth to be humiliated, to suffer, and in some ways to suffer all the time because of seeing the way things are and the way that they were not made to be. To live in this world where we don't honor God the way that we should, and we want to be worshiped instead of worshiping God. And Jesus endured that and endured the scorn of all of his enemies and endured the, golly, just the foolishness and density of all of his disciples like us, first the original disciples and then us now, and the slowness and the selfishness. And he took all of the weight of our sin on his shoulders to the cross so that it could be dealt with. So this God of justice could also be the God of mercy. That my sin could be dealt with on the cross, God executing perfect justice on his beautiful, perfect, sinless son on my behalf, so that now he could welcome me into his presence as his son and still be the God of justice and be the God of mercy and be the God of love and be the God of grace. But he's always both. And that's why the gospel is everything. That's why the, the news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is everything, because that's the only way that that can all be true. It's the only way. And Jesus is saying, I know you think it feels good that you might would choose to have the God of mercy and grace and not the God of justice, but I'm telling you that that leads to death. You, you, you have to have God in all of his fullness or else you have slavery. And so he says in verse 17, just listen. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Listen to this because I'm coming with these words of life. They are hard words, but they are words that will save you from destruction. Listen to me and live. And then he gives this, this encouragement at the end here. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. What is he, why does he say that? Well, if you know the story, I think it's Exodus 16. You can double check me on that. When God's people were coming through the wilderness, they didn't have a home. 
They didn't have jobs. They didn't have a regular source of food because they were always on the move. They were complaining and said, you know what? We might have been slaves, but at least we knew where our next meal was coming from. And God said, well, I'll take care of that. And I'm going to bring you this food and we're going to call it manna. And it's going to just rain down from heaven and literally be like oatmeal from the sky. <laughs> it's, it's oats. And it's going to fall and you're going to pick it up and you're going to eat it. And I'm going to give you twice the amount you need on Saturday or I guess Friday back then. Um, so that you don't have to gather on the Sabbath and you will know that I am the one who takes care of you. And so when Jesus brings that story here, he's saying, I know that you are terrified that you're going to lose your job. I know that you, you really, on some way, you don't want to go to those guild feasts and you don't want to like worship other gods and you don't want to get involved in all the crazy debauchery that they're involved in. I know that, but I also know you're afraid. And I also know that you think everyone's going to pass you by, or you're not going to be able to afford the house that you want. Or you're not going to be able to go on the vacation you want or buy the clothes you want if you don't just capitulate and keep moving up the ladder. But I'm telling you, if you will follow me at any and all costs, I will provide for you in ways that you have no idea, that you could never see coming. And I know it's still hard, but you have to trust me. You are not going to be able to see until you need it, the ways that I'm going to provide for you. And I'm not going to give you a preview. You have to hear me and you have to choose me. And then I will show myself faithful to you in this way. And then the second picture, he, the second promise, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And it's really interesting, there are multiple uses of white stones in this culture. And so there are a lot of different pictures this could be, and potentially he could be referencing all of them, because they would all make sense. But two in particular that I thought were really, um, really spoke to what we were talking about today. One is um, these white stones were used as tickets to get into these banquets and guild feasts. And he's saying, you might be excluded from that but I'm going to give you a ticket to the great feast, to the wedding supper of the lamb that will last for all eternity. And as painful as it is for you to be excluded from these guild feasts now, and I know it's painful, you will be with me in eternity, in abundant life forever. And the white stone was also given to victors in games and to gladiators. When they won their freedom, because they had so pleased the powers that be, they were handed a white stone and given their freedom and they don't have to fight anymore. And Jesus is saying, you have to fight. There is no other way. You have to fight, but there's a day coming where I will hand you the white stone of freedom and you can lay your sword down and you won't have to fight anymore. And that stone is gonna have a new name written on it. And there's, there's different thoughts about, is this a, a new name of Jesus or is this a new name of us? I think, again, I think it could be both, but I think he's talking about a new name for us because it's by living through these trials that he allows in our lives that he is actually making us who we really are. And he's saying, when you get to the end, you're gonna see who you really are and who you've always been this whole time and who I've been making you. And all the times that you've thought, this is so painful. 
And if God really loved me, he wouldn't allow me to walk through this or he wouldn't have taken that away from me. And he's going to say, you, you will finally see there will be a day coming when you see all of this. I have allowed in love because I'm making you who you are. I'm making you fully mature, fully healthy, fully free. And of course, as he calls us to fight, he is the one that's fighting for us. He's fighting with us. He's fighting through us. He's fighting for us. Exodus 14, 14 says, the Lord will fight for you and you need only to be still.